Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. Thanks to his massively popular CBC program, Under the Influence, Terry O'Reilly has become one of Canada's most recognizable admin. He's been a director and a copywriter and has run his own multi-award winning agency as well as written the books The Age of Persuasion and This I Know. And his Under the Influence podcast has over 30 million downloads. What I'm trying to tell you is that when it comes to advertising, Terry O'Reilly knows what he's talking about. You don't get many great strategies in the advertising business, by the way. It's the big glaring hole in advertising that when I talk to students in marketing classes in colleges and universities, I always say to them, how many of you in the room want to get into the strategic side of advertising? Because we have a lot of creative people in advertising. What we need more of are great strategic thinkers that can come up with an advertising strategy that when it's handed to the creative department, it sets them on fire. That as soon as you see the brief, you think, oh, I cannot wait to get at this project. The Creationist is a podcast about creativity wherever it might be found. Advertisements are one of the most visible forms of creativity in our everyday lives. So I reached out to Terry to take us through the creative process of developing an ad campaign. We started with one of the most successful of his career, a campaign that helped the NHL's Hockey Hall of Fame launch their interactive games exhibit. I'm going to back you up one beat because this is such a such an interesting story. So for years, I did the advertising for Black's photography. And the director of marketing was Brian Black, who was uh, the son of, the, of one of the two founders. And we did a lot of great work together. And then we lost. Then Black's got sold. Brian moved on. And I hadn't heard from Brian for years. One day, I'm driving to work. And I'm driving by the Hockey Hall of Fame in downtown Toronto. And I think to myself, I'm at a red light and I think, you know, what? I would love to advertise the Hockey Hall of Fame because all my heroes are in there. I love old time hockey. Uh, what a great product that would be to advertise. And then I just, you know, I filed that thought and I went to work. The next day, I get a call from Brian Black. And I haven't listened. And, and as I said, I, ha- I haven't talked to him for years. He calls me up and I said, Brian, that's just the funniest thing you're calling me because I, you know, I, I wondered where you were a couple of days ago, where you ended up. And, uh, and that, by the way, I had thought about him a couple of days prior and then I just had the Hockey Hall of Fame moment and then Brian calls me. And Brian says, yeah, I thought I'd reach out and touch, touch base because I'm the director of marketing for the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I said, that is just the craziest thing because I was thinking about you separately. Then I thought about the Hockey Hall of Fame yesterday and then you called me today. I said, that is just like what goes on in the universe that all those dots could connect. So that's how that's we got crazy. Yeah, it, it was really, really one of the most interesting moments in my uh, career as far as the serendipity of, of getting back in touch with somebody and thinking you'd like to do work for a, for a product and then the product lands on your desk. So Brian said, here's the problem we're having at the Hockey Hall of Fame. Everybody that's inducted in the Hall of Fame is retired. And that means that kids are not interested in them. Kids are only interested in current hockey players. And if kids don't want to come, dads won't come. So we're we're starting to lose some of our audience. So the, the task, the advertising task is to try and get kids to visit the hall and bug their dads or their moms to bring them to the hall. And they said, we're going to do something to help that. We're going to build an exhibit, a big exhibit room that has a lot of fun interactive games that kids will love. 
And there was a whole, like a whole slew of games they brought in, digital games, you know, um, be, you know, being in net while, while pucks come flying at you, you know, just a lot of interactive games. So that was the task, come up with a television commercial that uh, was interesting and got a lot of attention and advertise this new interactive uh, display that would attract kids. So we worked on, I had some great writers. We worked on uh, an idea and the writers came up with this wonderful notion. Uh, and, the, uh, and you can find the spot on YouTube, by the way. It's, it's called Puck Sandwich. So a guy walks up, if you can imagine the commercial, a guy walks up, it's a locked off camera. And he stares right at the camera as if he's looking at something. And then he looks down and he puts a coin in a machine and stands there waiting for something to happen. And then a couple seconds later, a puck hits him in the face, then another puck, then another puck, and then five or six pucks knock him in the face. Another puck knocks his glasses off and, and like four or five more pucks hit him in the face and then it stops. And then he laughs his head off and pushes the button to, to do it again. And you hear a voice say, welcome to the Johnny Bauer exhibit. And then there was a montage of all the fun games that uh, in the interactive display. And then the spot ended with the line, the Hockey Hall of Fame, it's so much fun, you won't know what hits you. So that was the idea. And it's, uh, if you watch the spot, it's really funny. The actor in it, his reaction to being hit in the face with these pucks, which were when we shot the thing was just rubber pucks. And we added sound effects of hard pucks, which is really funny. But anyway, I went to present that to Brian Black. And he liked it. So then I was asked to come in and present it to the rest of his team. They hated it. The biggest criticism was, we don't have that exhibit. We don't have a Johnny Bauer exhibit. And I said, it does, and I said to them, it doesn't matter that you don't have it. This is just a fun commercial that opens the door to the rest of the interactive that you do have. This is just an idea stopper. This is to get people to watch the, the commercial. And they weren't sure. So then they had me come back a, a second time and present it to a few more people at the hall. And they were also concerned. And then they asked me to come back a third time and present it to, to higher up, the uh, higher brass at the Hockey Hall of Fame. They were concerned. Then they got me back another time to present it to the uh, chief executive officer of the Hockey Hall of Fame, who was Scotty Morrison, the ex-referee-in-chief of the NHL. And Scotty, who I'd never met before, was a really lovely man. I presented the commercial to him and I said, it's just fun. We want to sell fun. This is, I know you don't have a Johnny Bauer exhibit, but this commercial is fun. And I think it'll get kids' attention. And then the rest of the commercial is all about your interactive department or interactive display. I think it'll work. And Scotty said, you know what? Let's do it. So the CEO, Brian Black, who loved it from the beginning and the CEO of the Hockey Hall of Fame gave us the blessing. So we went away and filmed it. And I had to get it all in one take, by the way. When you see the commercial, it's one take. You had to get the magic take, which we got in, I think, take five. It happened pretty quickly. Put the commercial out there. And the interesting thing started to happen. Kids started showing up to the Hockey Hall of Fame before the doors opened at 9 o'clock, started lining up. Then busloads of kids from schools started showing up at the Hockey Hall of Fame. It became probably, and I haven't talked to them for a while, it became the most successful commercial that the Hockey Hall of Fame ever did. It brought in kids by the busloads. And then when kids came, they brought their dads and they brought their moms. 
and the Hockey Hall of Fame's revenue chart just spiked north. So in hindsight, it was interesting because that was the hardest sell I think I've ever made in my career. I've never really had to present a commercial five or six times to five or six different groups within one company. Usually you'll have two or three presentations, not five or six. So it was the hardest sell I ever had and also one of the biggest successes we ever had. That's really awesome. I, I actually I want to get back to the um, the creative room in a second, but I actually I want do want to ask you about with regards to your presentations. How theatrical are you in presentations like this when you're trying to convince people that it is the right idea? I believe that presentations are theater, and I was taught that by my mentor many years ago. <clears throat> Early in my career, I would present very in a very business-like manner. I would present scripts like I figured that the businessman across the table from me wants to see another businessman, so I would sit there and just read the scripts and try and have a reasonable conversation about them. And my batting average was pretty low. And then occasionally in my early career, I would lose myself in the presentation. I would get up, I would start acting, I'd stand on the chair, I would get right into it. I would just lose, literally lose myself in the presentation, just get so absorbed by the presentation. And I started to notice that every time I did that, I sold the, the spot. So I slowly started to see a correlation between being theatrical in the boardroom and my batting average. And then I was lucky enough to work for a great creative director early in my career named Trevor Goodgall, who was a magnificent presenter. And he really took me to the next level on how theatrical a presentation should be because he believed it wasn't just theatrics. It was trying to get the client to feel the commercial before it's shot. Because you're just if you're just pointing to a storyboard, it's pretty flat. Or if you're reading a radio script, it's pretty flat unless you want to, unless you act it out, unless you literally bring emotion and theatrics and energy and to the presentation, and then they start to feel the spot in their bones. And if they get excited about it, then they'll approve it. So I'm very theatrical in presentations. For lack, I mean that that word sounds superficial, but it, I don't mean it to be. It means that I'm I just literally act out the commercials. And is that what you did in this case? Absolutely. You had to because it was a locked off camera. <clears throat> I mean, the storyboard was a single frame. <laughs> You can imagine that, like, it's not like 30 frames. It was just a lock-off frame, so it literally had to be acted out. And uh, the final spot, the final uh, commercial, which you'll see on YouTube, uh, the actor was so good in it that it became better than what I thought it could be, actually, because of his, his great reaction. And then when his glasses go flying, that was a complete mistake. We never thought his glasses would, would go flying off, and that was maybe one of the best moments in the commercials. Uh, in the commercial, rather. And the other thing I want to say about this commercial, Steve, is that the NHL started to play it in during games. So somewhere mid-game in, in uh, arenas across North America, they would the Hockey Hall of Fame would just pop this commercial onto the big screen, and, you know, the big screens in the, in the arenas, in the stadiums, and the crowds would go crazy. They would just go crazy when that spot aired. And even in sports bars, we were told, you know how loud a sports bar is, that commercial would come on, the bar would go silent, watch the whole commercial, then explode in laughter. So we were getting all this incredible feedback from this little, and I'm telling you, small budget, locked off camera, couldn't be a more inexpensive television commercial, but the creativity, the idea was just so funny and so right for that brief. 
and it just took off like wildfire. Listen, can you? Is it possible that you could take us into that um, creative meeting where this, where the idea finally um, hit the wall, and you guys realized this is the one you want to pitch? I'm just, I'm really curious as to, you know, what the, how the conversation goes around in that room when you come in and you say, the Hockey Hall of Fame has these interactive games. They want to bring people in. They want to excite kids. So that that was the basic premise. So it would the starting point was, what would be the most silliest, outrageous interactive game we could think of? And eventually that made its way around to the Johnny Bauer exhibit where somebody would put a coin or press a button on a machine and just get pummeled with pucks and then want to do it again. That was really... <laughs> The, it was just an in, a silly representation of how fun an interactive exhibit would be at the Hockey Hall of Fame. So it was really – we had lots of ideas too. I mean we had another idea that had nothing to do with interactivity on, just on our creative exploration. We had a, an idea where um, we had a hockey player, um, Eddie Shack who was kind of, if you remember back in the day, he was a Maple Leaf. He was like a real showman. Like he would scream as he, as he uh, uh, skated down the ice with the puck. Like he was like a real showboat, but he's not in the Hockey Hall of Fame. So one of our ideas was Eddie Shaq standing in line at the Hockey Hall of Fame saying, the only way Eddie Shaq's going to get into the Hockey Hall of Fame is when he buys a ticket. Like it was, you know, we had lots of funny <laughs> ideas on the way to the Johnny Bauer exhibit. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I just, just to let you know, you and I are – of the same era, I think you're about seven months older than me. Okay, so you know you get the reference points. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. John, by the way, Johnny Bauer uh, loved the commercial, mm-hmm. and uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame did this wonderful thing for me. They uh, invited me to their box at a uh, a Blue Jays game one night, shortly after this thing had just become this roaring success, and they said, "We want to thank you. Come to the box, you know." We'll watch the game together with everybody at the Hockey Hall of Fame and just our way of saying thank you. And I said, oh, that's fabulous. So on that night, I went to the Blue Jays game and made my way into the the beautiful, you know, Hockey Hall of Fame private box. And they said, we have somebody here we, we want you to meet. And they took me through the people and there was Johnny Bauer. And oh, it was just one awesome. of those great moments for me because I grew up watching him. I was such a huge fan of the Leafs back in the 60s and 70s. And it was he was just, he couldn't have been nicer. And he loved the commercial. So it was just a wonderful thing. Oh, that's so fantastic. Um, I, you know, I have been reading, I have been reading your book, this I know, and I've really been enjoying it. And because it's, it's really the kind of, it's the kind of book I really love getting into because I love just reading about, um, I love reading about processes in, in particular creative processes, but I just, I like, I love reading, um, you know, musicians, autobiographies and biographies, because I love to to sort of, you know, dig behind what, what led up to a song, what led up to an album, what led up to a career. So there's a, um, there's a couple, a couple of things in the book that I wanted to bring up. And I think it maybe goes back to this, um, goes back to this meeting, perhaps is you playing this, these what if games with your writers. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the what if games that you bring into rooms and, and how those lead into creative ideas. We would all sit around in the writing room and we would pour over the brief. 
supplied to us either by a direct client if we were working directly with the client as in the hockey hall of fame or if an advertising agency had hired us to do some work for them so we would pour over the brief looking really for insights and looking for the key message and wh whatever else we can glean from the brief because i'm a huge believer in strategy if you look at the if you track the evolution of our radio show this is my 15th season on cbc the show started as an exploration of creativity because I was a creative guy my whole career, but it very quickly has morphed into a show on strategy. Because if you listen to the stories I tell, they're really how a company developed a business strategy and then how that impacted their business and then what the creative expression was of that strategy. It's really a show on strategy and how strategy is the, are the load-bearing walls of any advertising campaign. So we would sit in the writing room and pour over the strategy, looking for an insight. You don't get many great strategies in the advertising business, by the way. It's the big glaring hole in advertising that when I talk to students at, in marketing classes in colleges and universities, I always say to them, how many of you in the room want to get into the strategic side of advertising? Because we have a lot of creative people in advertising. What we need more of are great strategic thinkers that can come up with an advertising strategy that when it's handed to the creative department, it sets them on fire. That as soon as you see the brief, you think, oh, I cannot wait to get at this project. That rarely happens. Most briefs are pretty flat. Like, you know, it'll be, you know, we, we sell one of the most competitively priced washers and dryers in the business. Like that'll be your brief. And then good grief, what am I gonna do with that, right? Yeah. So. We would sit in there, look over the brief for an insight, and then we would really start to play what-if games. And that was the unfettered silliness I was referring to earlier, that I really believe that in the early stages of developing an idea, that there's no such thing as a bad idea. We'll have time to vet them down the road, but in the early stages of, of conceptualizing, I was a big believer in let your mind go wild. What if there was a duck in this commercial? What if we could bring, um, what if we kidnapped dads and brought them to the Hockey Hall of Fame and then took the blindfold off? And there, what if, like we just, we would just play the silliest what if, what if we had the biggest budget in the world? What would we do? What if we could have a celebrity in this? Who would it be? What if we could have the hockey stars, if we could exhume dead hockey stars, who would we want in this commercial? What if, what if we could do that? Who would it? So we would just play the silliest, craziest thinking games to try and just stimulate directions and ideas and, and create some creative friction in the room where somebody says, yeah, maybe not that, but what about this? And it's just really about, because you know, if, if I say something to somebody, it triggers something in their mind that I would have never gotten to. And, and likewise, they'll say something, I'll go, hey, wait a second, what if it was this? And one of those moments led to the Johnny Bauer exhibit. What if we just pummeled a guy in the face with pucks in, in the interactive? It was just that, the silliness of eventually getting around to that idea. So. The early stages, my belief, the early stages of conceptualizing should be unfettered, unrestricted, not bound by reality, budget, deadlines, anything. It should just be a free-for-all brainstorming session. So what is the biggest mistake that clients make when they come in to talk to an agency? Well, that's a very <clears throat> multi-layered question. I think... 
I think not handing the agency any real <clears throat> strategic material to work with because it all it all begins and ends with what whatever the product or service is that's being advertised and and really not give handing the agency anything interesting to work with but i think the bigger sin is really not wanting creativity not wanting bold ideas and expressing that in a meeting the best clients i've ever had were ones that said you know give me a big idea make make my palms sweat and those were the always the clients that we in fact did that with. We came back with big ideas. They un, they recognized them and they approved them. The bad clients think creativity is uh, is quirky and wonky, and that creativity gets in the way of the message. And these are the clients that think all you have to do is just you know clearly state your proposition, put it in a commercial, put it out there, people will absorb it and run out to buy something, which never happens. Creative people make the immediate assumption that nobody listens to advertising. If you make that your starting point, then you will create something interesting because the creativity gets a foot in the door. And if someone is, is enamored with the creativity of a commercial, they might be willing to sit through that commercial. And then we can get to the selling proposition. So creativity is, a, is amplification. It's about, without creativity, I always say it's like giving a speech to a stadium without a microphone. Only the first couple of rows will hear you. But if you add creativity to a message, it's like being amplified throughout the entire stadium. And, and, and you have a much greater chance of getting most of that audience to listen to you. So then what is the biggest mistake that agencies make? I would say not being bold enough in the boardroom not pushing back. Um, I gave a talk earlier this week, a virtual keynote to a conference, and I said to them, you know, in, in my career, so ten, for 10 years I was a copywriter, and then for the next 25 years I was a commercial director and creative director, but I, I directed commercials. In that time, those 25 years, I directed over 14,000 commercials. So I had a front row seat to see how agencies react when clients push back on their ideas or push back on a, on a great line in a recording session or a choice of music or whatever it might be. And 75% of the time, agencies would just fold. They would push back a little, but then they would give up and then just go with what the client wanted, even if it was hamstringing the commercial. And I never understood that. And I was never that guy. When it was my, as a director, I could only push so much. But when it was our work, we would push hard and we weren't aggressive. We weren't rude. We weren't distasteful. We were just, we were very confident and we wouldn't back down when someone says, I don't like it. We would say, tell us why. And then we would try and can bring their thinking around to why we think this is the, the best spot. We wouldn't always win, but our batting average was very high. We were bold in the boardroom. And I think if you're asking me where agencies fall down as a rule, it's that they don't push back. They don't stand their ground. So let's wind it back then now, back beyond the 14,000 commercials and all those years as a, as a creative director and, and copywriter. And can you give us, uh, give us a story about your background, where uh, you started, you were born in Sudbury, I understand. Right. And how did you get your uh, interest in advertising? How did you end up in advertising? Yeah, I will take you back to, I'm going to take you back to 1963. 
I'm four years old and I am on Romper Room. So I'm on that TV show, if you remember that wow. show. Of course and, I do. <laughs> so one day, uh, the director of the Romper Room pulls my mom aside and says, do you mind if we use Terry in a TV commercial we're shooting in the next studio for a local bakery? Well, my, my mom says, sure. So they pull me out after Romper Room and they walk me across to another studio and there's a table set up there with some bread and a sandwich and there's an announcer standing there. And the director says, Terry, all you got to do is stand there and eat the sandwich while this wonderful guy talks about Securities Bakery and why their bread is so good. So I just looked at my mom and I said, okay. And then we did a couple of takes where I just stood there and ate my sandwich. And then on one take, I looked, af- I looked up at the announcer standing beside me, the, the, uh, the spokesperson. And I said, uh, do I have to eat the crust? <laughs> and I remember the direct, a typical kid, right? I remember the director laughing off camera. And then that was it. And then he said, I love that. And then that became the commercial that ran in the Sudbury, Northern Ontario uh, um, television stations in the early 60s for a long time. And the, the weird thing about that was I was four when I was in that commercial, but it aired for probably three or four years. So I, even as a seven-year-old, I, was, I could sit at home and watch myself as a four-year-old on TV when that commercial popped up, which is so strange. But who knows? That might have been the first little inkling, Steve, of of advertising in my psyche that was this you know this little wonderful little opportunity and me being on television how exciting that was i went into uh high school in sudbury at sudbury secondary school and we were so lucky because we had a uh, film and television course from grade 9 to 13 full studio all equipment unbelievable we're so fortunate in a small mining town to have a fully fledged film and television course with all the equipment, cameras, switchers, lighting grids, everything. So for five years, I got to create film and TV shows. And some of those TV shows got aired on the cable networks up there. So then when I realized I loved that and I wanted to go uh, study uh, film and television, I applied to Ryerson. And when I went down for my interview, I had a reel. I mean, most people applying to Ryerson were coming to it for the very first time. I had a reel under my arm of television shows and films I had done. So my marks weren't that great in my academic subjects, but my but I had a reel. And I got in. And uh, here's the funny part. The first year was all radio, which I really did not have any interest in. I actually thought of the three years I'm going to spend at Ryerson, why waste one year doing radio? But I kind of began to like radio through that year. It kind of was this epiphany to me. Second year was television. Third year was film. Every Wednesday morning, we would have a lecture class where somebody from the industry would come in and talk to us. So we'd have documentary filmmakers, newsreaders, journalists, reporters, directors, actors come in and talk to us. One day, advertising people came in and talked about a life in advertising about you know, coming up with ideas and strategies and working with actors and studios and recording studios and shooting on location and understanding products and psychology and human nature. And I sat in the back of that room and I saw my future. I said, that's what I want to do. So when I got out of Ryerson, I sent out uh, 60 resumes to advertising agencies right across the country, most of which were in Toronto at that time. But there was about, you know, 
45 of them were in Toronto and 15 of them were across the country. And I got back this true story, 61 rejection letters. One place actually rejected me twice. <laughs> That's how much they didn't want me. And it was the recession, 1981, so it was hard to get a job. But uh, I got lucky and got a job at a small radio station writing copy, being their real, their, their only creative person. I didn't want to be in a radio station. I liked radio, but I wanted to be in an advertising agency doing all mediums. But it was a job. So I, uh, I gladly took it. And that's where I truly fell in love with radio, the serendipity of life. And from there, I just worked my way to, to other ad advertising agencies in Toronto and, uh, and then eventually started my, co-founded my company in 1990. Now, uh, do you remember the first commercial that you directed? Well, I would direct all the commercials at the radio station, but that was really local, local ads using the, you know, the DJs. But if you're talking in the big leagues, mm -hmm. that's a very good yeah. question. What was the first thing I directed? I'm not sure I could remember that. What, what their product was. That's a very good question. Do you remember your first, do you remember your first award? Yes, I, no, I do, oh, I on. do. Um, <laughs> it was for a radio okay. spot. It was, um, I was working at, at, at my first big time agency called Campbell Ewald. And that's where I met my mentor, Trevor Goodgall, who I mentioned earlier. One of the first uh, briefs they gave me was for a pillow made by DuPont. It was called Qualifil. In other words, instead of it being stuffed with down, it was stuffed with soft fibers and being positioned against down as a much cheaper alternative. That was the brief. And we came up with a commercial. My partner and I came up with a commercial about plucking ducks, which was kind of funny. That Why pluck a duck when you can you know, have a Qualifil pillow? <clears throat> And uh, we had a lot of fun with, we plucked a duck on the, on the air, which was just kind of funny. It just sounded like Daffy Duck being really annoyed. And uh, it's like, uh, uh, yeah. why don't pluck a duck. And uh, that commercial became really popular and uh, sold a ton of pillows for DuPont and ended up winning the gold award at the marketing awards that year as the best radio commercial. And that was in my very first year at the big agency. So that was a, a, a wonderful and still very thrilling thing for me when I think back of that on that moment of when it was announced. Very exciting. I, I thought I found it really uh, interesting in the book where you talk about how um, that agent that awards are really the currency for agencies rather than results with regards to the, the customers because the awards are the things that get you the next gig and, and tell people how good of an agency you can be. Well it's more the currency for the creative people more than the agency. Um, the problem in, in the advertising world is there are a lot of factors that go into a sale. Advertising is just one. The rest of it is how well is the product distributed? What is the shelf position? How, ma how many facings do you get in a, in a grocery store? Uh, what's the price point? Like there's a lot of things that get in the way of selling a product. So it's very hard to, to hang your hat on sales sometimes in advertising because so much of it's out of your control. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the advertising world, creative people uh, are judged more by creative directors, by the awards they win because as superficial as that sounds, it's really not that advertising awards are incredibly important because it keeps the age, the industry on its toes. 
In other words, the best work gets awarded by your peers, and that's the work you aspire to as a creative person. So it keeps all the creative fires lit in the industry. It's like, it's like the Oscars when the best picture wins, everybody looks at it and says, you know, I want to make a picture that good one day. And it's the same kind of thing. And remember, too, that advertising is a business of rejection. You will, pre- you know, you will present 10 ideas and have nine of them shot down every other day. You will be in meetings where people will turn down your work. And it's not just clients. Your creative director say, you're not there yet. I don't like any of these ideas you presented. Or the account service department will say, yeah, these, 10, these five ideas you presented are fine, but they're strategically off the mark or whatever it might be. Then you get to the client and the client says, I don't, I don't like anything here. Like there's a ton of rejection in the advertising business. So the awards are kind of just a little bit of a, like a calamine lotion for all of that, right? So award right. shows are important and they serve many purposes. I'd, I'd love to hear, um, hear you talk a little bit about the evolution of social media platforms and the opportunities that you saw as they were becoming more and more prevalent in our society? I worry, I worry about social media. I did in the beginning and I worry about it now for several reasons. I, I love it. I use it. I use social media extensively. The downside is there's a lot of nastiness on social media and a brand has to find its way through all that. So it's, it's, it's got some tonal issues that everybody's you know fully aware of. The other thing that I worry about social media is that it's a small increment of time as a rule. And I think time is the major factor in persuasion. So back in the day, before social media, we had 30 and 60 second radio spots. We had 30 and 60 second television spots. We had long format newspaper advertising. We'd write long copy for magazines because a magazine would hang around for a month on someone's coffee table. So the opportunity to to read a a copy-rich ad was high. And when social media came in, it it just narrowed down to little bite-sized moments. Like, you know, it's a 280 characters on Twitter or, uh, you know, a short post on Instagram or, uh, you know, something, you know, you could do a little bit more writing on Facebook, for example, but it was really, if you look at it from a whole, you know, short bites are the, are the currency of, of social media. And I think, it makes persuasion very difficult. So I love social media because you don't have to spend money on social media. You can, but you don't have to. You just have to spend time. You have to create a relationship with your customers or your listeners on social media. You can't always be selling. You have to be in the sharing business. And then when it comes time to sell, it's okay. For example, if you look at our Twitter account for our radio show, for example, you look at how much back and forth goes on between us and our listeners. It's extraordinary. They're commenting on the shows. They're sending me great ideas all the time for shows, or they're sending me great ads they discover in their travels, which I would have never seen. So it's always a dialogue with our listeners. And then when it comes time to sell something like my latest book, I'll put that out there on social media and everybody's cool with it because I'm not selling on it all the time. I'm actually, I have a relationship with them and they're willing to, to, you know, listen to my ads for our various products when the time is right. So, and the other thing about social media, Steve, I think I have to say is it's a great place to listen. Prior to social media, if you wanted to know what your customers were thinking, 
you would have to hire expensive research companies and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars doing big research projects. And now all you really have to do is go on social media and listen because the best marketers are the best listeners. And I, I'm wondering about pod. Let's, let's move into podcasting here. I'm wondering, um, did you see as podcasting was beginning, did you see it as an opportunity or was it an opportunity that was brought to you by CBC with regards to moving your shows over there? I'm just wondering how it started for you. We wanted to podcast immediately. We saw the opportunity there as a way to just broaden our listenership, attract more listeners. Uh, we saw the digital wave coming, so we wanted to podcast immediately. We were held off for two or three years because of music issues. So as, as podcasters know, you, it, you are not allowed to use needle drop music in a podcast. There are no royalty rates in place. I hear a lot of young podcasters doing it, and it's very dangerous because – all music is coded, and if Sony Music is sitting back and making notes on all the music that's being used illegally, they could come back to you with retroactive royalty payments, and that could be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So while we waited for music rights to, to snap into place, CBC was telling us, don't worry, we're negotiating with the record labels. It, we're, you know, we're making progress. So two or three years went by, and it just never resolved. So we made the decision to just do a separate version of our show that took out all the needle drop music and replaced it with stock music with licensed music so that's because i was too anxious to wait i wanted to get onto podcasting so 10 years ago we started podcasting our show which is a different version than on air has no needle drop and occasionally it's a longer i'll, I'll add some bonus material into podcasts that didn't make because for example i'll record the show keith will put it together it'll send it back to me and i'm five minutes too long because you don't really know till you, you put it all together what the length of the show is. So I'll often leave that extra five minutes into the podcast, but have to shave it down to 27 minutes and 30 seconds for air. So there's bonus po uh, material in our podcast, and all the, the needle drop music is stripped out. So now you've decided to go into the family, turn podcasting into a family business with apostrophe. Um, that's right. When that's did, right. When did... Yeah, when did you make that decision, and uh, how did uh, how did how did you get it started? The decision was: I had a, a meeting with my family, my, meaning two of my three daughters. My one, my oldest daughter, lives in London, England. She is a teacher over there. But my two younger daughters and my wife, <clears throat> who were very active, by the way, in Under the Influence already, behind the scenes. Debbie was producing it, but my daughters were also doing social media and doing graphic design and. So I sat down with them and we just had a big discussion. I said, I think there is an opportunity. This would be probably last summer, a year ago. There's an opportunity out there to become a really great Canadian podcasting network. Kind of like what we see happening in the States. Because I think we're probably three years behind the States in the podcasting world as a rule. We're catching up, but I would say we're Canada's kind of like lagging behind a bit. And there were these really successful podcast networks happening in the U.S., like Gimlet and Wondery, where they would create podcasts and put them on their platform, but they would also entertain podcasts from outside their walls and bring those inside and then you know uh, impress their creativity on those, and that becomes part of their network. And I said, I, I think there's an opportunity to do that in Canada. And I'm wondering if we can, if you're interested in starting that kind of a company. So my family said, absolutely, we'd love to. So the four of us are equal partners in apostrophe. 
the name comes from the apostrophe in our last name, which is the bane of our existence because the digital world <laughs> cannot accept an, an apostrophe. We've never tried to check into a hotel. If there's any O'Malley's or, or O'Leary's out there, you know what I mean. Uh, it always throws computers off. But anyway, that's the inside joke on the name. But we are a, we are a podcast network. So under the influence and our latest podcast called We Regret to Inform You, the Rejection Podcast, which is our new series that looks at the tells the stories of successful people who had debilitating career rejection. And then we talk about how they overcame those rejections and analyze how they did it. So every show is, is features one person's journey from absolute rejection to absolute success. So those two are the first two podcasts for the Apostrophe Podcast Network. We have three more in development that'll be hitting the air shortly. Then we have three more past that'll that'll be in the third wave. So we are a podcast network and we're a podcast production company. So we also write, research, record, mix, and and onboard podcasts. Well, can I tell you that I have listened to every episode of We Regret to Inform You, and I love it. Thank I you, I absolutely Steve. love it. Honest to God. And one of the things that I will I, I want to say is that in order to do a good podcast, you have to do good research. You need to tell really good stories. And I think, you know, we regret to inform you and under the influence are two really well researched podcasts that tell really great stories. Yeah. Well, we're we're huge believers in research as as you've pointed out. I mean, the toughest part of Under the Influence is the research. It's uh, every show, we have researchers. So every show I'll assign a researcher to that episode and I'll, I'll send them off with very specific things to, to find. And I'll do the other half of the research. And when, we, when I get the research back and combine it with my research, it's probably, you know, roughly about 100 to 150 pages of research that I then have to go through, make my notes, form the show in my head, and then it takes me two days to write a show, a 27-minute show, and then I, I always love to have at least half of a third day to comb all the knots out of it. So really, when you think about our show, Steve, it's, you know, uh, it, takes, it takes me like three days to go through the research when I get it back. It takes me two and a half days to write the show. And then it takes 12 hours to record and mix our half hour show because it's a very ambitious show. There's music, there's sound effects, there's clips, there's commercials. There's sometimes I'll bring in actors to do funny things for us. Actors I've worked with for all these years. It's a very ambitious show because I really believe that great podcasts should not just be researched and well-written. They should be sonically interesting. So it's a big undertaking, that show, and any podcast is a huge undertaking. We regret to inform you is, this, is almost the same thing on a different topic. It's a ton of research. It's a ton of very careful writing, and then it's, it's recording and then putting the show together sonically interesting, in an interesting way, rather. So it's, any podcast is, is – I read an interesting stat that's something like, and I don't remember what the exact percentage was, but like 25% of the podcasts on iTunes have never issued a second episode. And I get that because it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It's satisfying. I love it, but it's a ton of work. You should have a sense by now that doing a lot of work isn't really an issue for Terry O'Reilly. He's just finished his 15th season on the CBC, 
And in addition to producing shows for his Apostrophe podcast network, he's now writing his third book. By the way, if you're interested in advertising or marketing, I highly recommend listening to his Under the Influence podcast. You should also take the time to listen to Apostrophe's latest, We Regret to Inform You, the Rejection podcast, which tells stories of adversity people like Jay-Z, Lady Gaga, and Stephen King had to go through before achieving their success. If you want to find out more about Terry and Apostrophe, please visit terryoreilly.ca. Don't forget there won't be any apostrophe in O'Reilly. If you'd like to comment on this episode, have suggestions for future episodes, or just want to say hi, please email thecreationistpodcast at gmail.com. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any friends that might be interested in the podcast, please share this link with them. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrand. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast.